Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. Hello everyone, it's your host Ali Jaffe and welcome to today's episode on Nutritank Nourish Your Mind podcast. On today's episode, I'll be discussing medical racism, the health inequalities faced by BAME communities and the prejudice faced by BAME healthcare professionals. And I'll briefly touch upon issues healthcare professionals face around sexism. For those that don't know, BAME refers to black, Asian and minority ethnic groups. A small disclaimer, This conversation in this episode you're about to listen to was recorded on May 31st, before many of the protests began, and before historical incidents occurred, especially surrounding statues from being taken down. This is why these topics don't feature in the conversation I have with my wonderful three guests. There have been recent tragic and unjust deaths of African-American men. Armand Arbery, who was fatally shot in February by white men, and George Floyd, who was killed by a white police officer on May 25th. This is not the first time stories like this have emerged in America. There is ongoing societal racism towards black communities that exists and needs addressing. Activism against racism is a shared responsibility, something that everyone and anyone needs to be involved in so that stories like this, which have been happening for decade after decade, become part of our shameful history and do not continue to emerge into our present and future. Moreover, COVID-19 has brought to light many of the health inequalities faced by BAME communities due to entrenched societal issues around race. At Nutritank, we don't want BAME education to be a one-off. We don't want it to just be a black square that you post on your social media platform to show your solidarity. With our platform, we have access to a large healthcare professional audience, so we want to commit to ongoing education around BAME healthcare, lifestyle and nutrition issues. That's how it should have always been and how it should be from now on, with no excuses. So let me tell you about some of the COVID-19 and BAME statistics. BAME staff account for 21% of the NHS workforce making up 20% of nursing and support staff and 44% of medical staff. COVID-19 is not an equaliser. The pandemic has shone a spotlight on the health disparities and created an opportunity to address the factors which contributed to these inequalities. Worse outcomes have been found in minority groups, those living in lower socioeconomic conditions and those with underlying lifestyle conditions, especially obesity, type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So what does the research show us? UCL researchers found that the risk of dying from coronavirus for people of black African background was 3.24 times higher than for the general population. In contrast, Caucasian English people had a lower chance with 0.88 of dying from COVID-19. 
Pakistani people, three times 0.29 times more likely to die of COVID-19, and Bangladeshi people, 2.41 times more likely to die of COVID-19, Black Caribbean people, 2.21 times more likely to die of COVID-19, and Indian people, 1.7 times more likely to die of COVID-19. The data really says it all, doesn't it? At Nutritank, we believe tackling racism is a shared responsibility and not solely a vague person's responsibility. The onus to change the social construct of racism should not just fall on those directly affected. From friends and colleagues I've spoken to, they've expressed that it is emotionally and physically draining enough to experience unjust discrimination due to the colour of their skin, without the added pressure of having to lead and nudge the conversations around change. No skin colour should be superior, no matter what. White families should be responsible in educating their children around societal issues of racism and discrimination and unconscious bias. I am a white British person, however, I am a first generation Brit. Both of my parents are white South Africans who grew up in South Africa during its apartheid regime. Apartheid is a political system of segregation based on grounds of race. My family, in particular my wonderful uncle Glenn Moss, were involved in anti-apartheid activism. In 1975, Glenn was detained under Section 6 of the Terrorism Act and placed in solitary confinement for several months for campaigning against the regime and for supporting the release of all political prisoners campaign, which of course included Nelson Mandela. 20 years later, in 1995, Mandela, by then president, made contact and thanked my uncle and my uncle's comrades who had campaigned for Mandela and others to be released at a dark time in their imprisonment when they feared they had been forgotten. My uncle's lunch he had with Mandela is a memory he holds on to very closely, and one he and the rest of my family shared with me and my younger brother at a very young age to explain the huge issues around racial discrimination. I am 24 years old and have been raised in England, and I of course did not live through the apartheid regime in South Africa like my parents and the rest of my family did. However, today in 2020, in the UK, Issues around racism and discrimination emerge time and time again. My discussions with med student friends and colleagues around their experiences are evidence of this. Enough is enough. This must be written in our history and not taken further with us into our future. Social changes must be made so future BAME generations can experience life differently. I have so much yet to learn and I hope others take it upon themselves to learn and be receptive of education in this important area. I am absolutely delighted to introduce three wonderful, inspiring women who are speaking on today's episode. Dr. Shireen Kassam trained in general medicine and is now a consultant haematologist and honorary senior lecturer at King's College Hospital London, with a special interest in the treatment of patients with lymphoma. Shireen is also a visiting lecturer at University of Winchester as part of their health and wellbeing research group. Shireen is passionate about promoting plant-based nutrition for the prevention and reversal of chronic diseases and for optimal health after cancer treatment. Shireen herself follows a plant-based diet and has since immersed herself in the science of nutrition and health. She's the founder and director of Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, a non-profit organisation whose mission it is to provide evidence-based education to health professionals and the wider public on plant-based nutrition and other lifestyle interventions for the prevention of chronic disease. To follow Dr. Shireen and her organisation's work, 
check her out on Instagram at plantbasedhealthprofessionals and look at their website plantbasedhealthprofessionals.com. Dr Neetu Bakajel has been an NHS consultant in obstetrics and gynaecology for 20 years with over 35 years experience in women's health. Neetu is also one of the first US board certified lifestyle medicine physicians in the UK. She's the founder of Women for Women's Health, a voluntary service set up in 2014 to educate and empower women to make dietary and lifestyle choices to help improve their own and their family's health. Dr. Becca Jell runs workshops for healthcare professionals, public and schools, both in the UK and abroad, covering a range of health concerns such as painful periods, PCOS, contraception, HPV, menopause and much more. Nita is passionate about educating medical students and doctors about women's health and lifestyle medicine as she firmly believes that these go hand in hand. Most recently she wrote the Women's Health Module for the first UK-based nutrition course for health professionals launched by Winchester University. To find out more about her work, look at neetubakajel.com and follow her on Instagram at drneetubakajel. And last but not least, Dr Tosin Sutubo. Dr Sutubo, also known as Mind Body Doctor, specialises in general practice and works in London. She is also a clinical entrepreneur and diversity advocate. Tosin is passionate about spreading health awareness and created Mind Body Doctor as a friendly and accessible space to educate and inspire people to take care of what is important, from chronic disease and nutrition to mental health and sexual health. She has an extensive media portfolio, writing lots of publications and articles, including a piece for the Metro on the lack of diversity in the wellness industry to life as a GP. She also has spoken at many high-profile events, including the Live Well Festival, and often gives talks at medical schools, most recently giving a talk at St George's Medical School called Being Black in the NHS. She has also given a talk at the University of Birmingham called Medical School and Beyond to discuss a career in general practice. To follow Dr Tosin Sutubo's work, check her out on Instagram at mindbodydoctor. Her website is mindbodydoctor.co.uk. I'm also going to link the article she wrote for the Metro paper around the lack of diversity in the wellness industry within the show notes. Let's all meet our wonderful guests. Welcome all, thank you so much for taking up your Sunday afternoon with me on NutriTank's podcast. It's an absolute pleasure and privilege to have such inspiring women on the episode today and to talk about such profound and emotive topics. So thank you for joining me and let's just start off by introducing you all to our listeners. So whoever wants to go first, let's just go for a little intro. Tell us about yourself. Hi Ali, um, thanks so much for having me here today. Um, so my name's Dr. Tosin Sotobo. I'm a GP based in London and I'm also, uh, I founded Mind Body Doctor which is an online platform and the aim behind that is meant to be a relaxed and easy platform where people can come and learn more about their health and really want to be educated and inspire people to take control of their health. Um, so that's the basics of my platform and I'm a big diversity advocate and I try and reflect that and talk about that as much as I can on the platform. So that's a bit about me in a nutshell and yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to delve into this topic today. 
Thank you, Tosa. So, hi, Ali, it's Shireen here. So, my name's Shireen Kassam. I'm, I'm a consultant haematologist and I work at King's College Hospital. Um, but I'm also a certified lifestyle medicine physician and I'm founder and director of Plant Based Health Professionals UK, which is a community interest company with a mission to provide evidence based education through plant based nutrition. I also um, run a course on plant-based nutrition at Winchester University. Thank you. And last but not least, Nitu. Hi, my name is Nitu Bajikul. I am a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist on the NHS and uh, since 20 years I am the founder of Women for Women's Health which is uh, set up a voluntary organisation to empower women to make better health choices. And I'm really excited. So thank you, Ali, for inviting me to speak today on uh, issues that are close to my heart, especially with these wonderful women. I couldn't, I second that completely. I couldn't agree more. Such wonderful women. And it would just be amazing to hear all your diverse perspectives. So let's dive in. I've explained in the introduction a bit of background about um, health inequalities in BAME communities and how COVID-19 has shone a light on such health disparities. So I'd like to hear from your perspective what your initial reactions are on hearing the statistics and news stories around how BAME communities have been so disproportionately affected by COVID-19. What did you think when you heard about this? I think um, for me, it was, I think at first when we were seeing the numbers, it was shocking and it was it was sad and a bit disheartening. I, just, I think the first 10 doctors to die from the virus were from the same community, um, which at first I was surprised about, but as time went on and I started to think about it more, it wasn't as surprising, I think. The virus has unfortunately brought to the forefront, like you said, a lot of the inequalities in our community. Um, so that was my original thoughts on the virus and the inequalities and what's been happening. Um, I think I'll go into a little bit more detail as we go through the conversation about my thoughts. But yeah, those were my initial thoughts. Sure. Nita or Shireen? I was pretty surprised actually I mean I, I I guess you know I've I've always been relatively privileged um with my background my education my opportunities and then to suddenly come across a situation where people within our communities are disproportionately hit was an eye-opener for, for me because it really highlighted again the disparities um, between the different um, groups in our societies um, and has really made me start to consider and read more about it and, and, and educate myself um, in this area of socioeconomic um, disadvantage really which is being highlighted in the minority um, groups alongside other important factors so so yes the initial shock has led me to sort of delve deeper into this um, and it's an area that we we all need to educate ourselves in sure i need to yeah i think initially there was an element of surprise 
Um, but that didn't last very long because having trained in India, I had already seen firsthand uh, the socioeconomic um, differences that occur uh, when you have, um, you know, this leads into health uh, differences as well. And so, like Shireen and Tosin, I think initially I was surprised, but then realized that this was not just a chance occurrence and that all COVID-19 had done was to pull the curtain on what was always a real issue, um, the huge differences in um, equity and justice, I felt. Um, and it was just highlighting this um, in front of us, unraveling itself in front of us, um, is what how I felt. Absolutely. And Shireen, you mentioned um, that there are important factors that you need to consider that have contributed to this disproportionate um, group being so affected by COVID. So let's dive into some of these important factors. I know there have been many articles and opinion pieces trying to understand the causality and of course it's very multifaceted. So why is it that Bain communities have been so disproportionately affected? Yeah, so I mean, it, it, it's a question that we would all like to know the answer to, and I think it's going to take time, probably too much time for us to really truly understand. But I think some things are apparent, um, such that the BAME community in the UK um, are more overrepresented in um, disadvantaged socioeconomic groups, such that they are in the essential workers groups that have um, continued to continue to work in people facing um, jobs such as you know cleaning and drivers delivery people taxi drivers etc um, so it, it's shown the structural um, issues we have in our society where the BAME community find themselves in lower socioeconomic um, groups for a number of condition for, for a number of reasons, um, but also that you know the because of that the opportunities for um, living healthily are, are less readily available. So they are communities which may um, have more unhealthy behaviours such as unhealthy diets, less access to open spaces, um, less opportunity for the traditional exercise that we all undertake um, and are living in multi-generational households with um, large numbers of people in the house. Um, so really it's highlighted that this social distancing and physical distancing um, that many of us are able to undertake um, is really a sign of privilege and these communities have not had the privilege of being able to stay at home, work remotely on their computer and still carry on earning a wage. So, so, so that's one thing that I think has been highlighted. Sure. And um, Nitu and Tosin, do you have any other comments diving into the factors that contribute to this disparity? I think a lot of uh, pain communities, a lot, especially, you know, the frontline, front-facing workers, as Shireen said, many of them um, have come into this country as immigrants like myself, uh, but uh, 
you know, people who have come from um, less privileged background than myself have come sometimes with, um, you know, background underlying conditions, uh, which then make them more prone to getting infections. Uh, I think definitely language can be a barrier. And so what, uh, you know, the ordinary person might understand and grasp very quickly, uh, that is not necessarily being made available to all sections of the communities. And I think those are very important factors that haven't been taken into account. Uh, you know, it's not just about spreading a, a message. It has to reach the right people uh, because it all affects us. You see, everything will affect us ultimately. Sure. Yeah, I think um, Shireen and Nita have touched on some really important factors there. And I think that what this virus has done is it's brought all those factors together and kind of in one has highlighted and magnified, you know, the health disparities, um, the socioeconomic disparities, the potential racial bias in the healthcare industry. And I think it's brought all those factors together and we're seeing them, although we've seen them previously, we're just seeing the, the vast impact that is the reality of inequalities in our in our society and I think kind of that's what coronavirus has done it's just highlighted what was already there I couldn't agree more it's almost like the tip of the iceberg and there's so much that hasn't been unearthed yet because people haven't paid attention and you know the food environment hasn't been helpful to those in lower socio-economic um, classes um, so yeah, I do think we're only really seeing the tip of the iceberg with these disparities due to COVID being such an acute pandemic. So um, I would like for you to all comment on um, some of the pieces I've been reading around the obesity links and um, COVID, as you mentioned with um, those in Bain communities, majority of them are in um, a lower socioeconomic status than others in society so um you know food poverty very much exists and they can live in areas that are somewhat of a food desert in terms of the nutrients that they can put into their bodies so could you just tell listeners a little bit from your perspectives tosin in primary care first and then me too and shireen in secondary care a little bit about these links yeah i think um so we know that obesity and heart disease is more prevalent in BAME communities um, and for lots of different reasons, be it socio-economic, um, a lack of understanding or a lack of availability to the resources and the nutrition and the exercise that they really need. Um, and I think it's difficult in these communities because when you look at these communities, a lot of them have come from abroad, and a lot of them are migrants that have come to this country. So they've grown up a certain way and a certain culture, eating certain types of food. And we're expecting sometimes a lot of these communities to quickly adapt to a westernized way of living. And I think in primary care, often the difficulty I have is trying to change those health behaviors in a 10 minute consultation, which is almost impossible. Um, and sometimes you feel like you're shortchanging people from these societies that actually need that extra bit of time, that need that extra education and the tools and the resources to, to 
to help them. So I think that's the, for me in primary care, that's a difficulty when it comes to the prevalence of obesity and chronic diseases that essentially are preventable if we give people the tools and education that they need. And then just to um, take that further, then what have the links been with the rising rates of obesity and people who are worse affected by COVID? Do you know much about yes, that? Yes, uh, I, I went on a tangent there, didn't I? <laughs> um, so I so it's definitely, we, have, we are seeing a link because we've seen possibly those who are being affected more with the virus who aren't coping with it more and the death rates have those chronic secondary underlying conditions such as obesity and heart disease. Um, why that is, if we look at kind of any other health or virus, it's just that the body is just not able to cope with it as much as it would be in, let's say, uh, someone that didn't have these chronic conditions. So unfortunately, it is putting people that are in that category at a little bit of a disadvantage because their body's just not able to cope with the virus as well as it possibly would have been if they didn't have these comorbidities. Sure. And over to Nitu and Shireen in secondary care. I know, Nitu, you're dealing with pregnant women, some who are overweight. Um, How have you seen um, it, A, take away the COVID situation, it affects them? Um, and then Look, how can you comment on the links with COVID and obesity? I think um, if we just look at the statistics, um, you know, about 70% of the UK population is either overweight or obese and uh, the BAME community is represented, overrepresented in that group. And we see this, I see this in the obstetrics and gynecology uh, department with all the repercussions that come with being overweight and diabetes, gestational diabetes and, and you know, um, various other symptoms uh, of obesity. But what we must try and understand is that obesity is an inflammatory state uh, and so you know your body is in a constant state of stress and of course stress itself i mean i'm not just talking about the stress to the uh, tissues but stress in itself can make people have uh, increased uh, put on increased weight because of the cortisol and the uh, hormonal balances so and we know that if you're going to face racism uh, and differences in your daily workplace or on the street that's going to make you have again a reaction once you reach back home reaching out for the wrong foods so i see that in women all the time in gynecology especially from the more underprivileged um, socioeconomic de- deprived uh, communities so i think that obesity really touches on all these aspects uh, both from the health perspective as well as from the mental uh, perspective that's so fascinating and something I never quite thought about, um, that impact that you've just mes- mentioned about the stigmatism that they feel and then the behaviours that it leads to. Thank you for that. And Shireen, as a haematologist? Yeah, um, well, just to step back a, a little bit about um, back to the first question, I, I guess what we haven't really explained is why, you know, in the deaths and doctors why 
um, BAME, um, and certainly South Asian doctors are overrepresented because, you know, clearly we as doctors have means and financial resources, um, etc., and access to healthy food in, in general. So, so then that sort of comes back to thinking about underlying health conditions, which we know for, for sure in the South Asian community happens at an earlier age. And also, you know, the same um, uh, nut figures for a healthy BMI um, uh, don't really a, a apply in that the, Ill, the diseases such as type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease are often seen in the BMI range, which we consider normal for Caucasians, um, because there's a higher propensity for deposition of visceral um, uh, fat, which is obviously the, the fat that's sort of metabolically active and leading to the inflammation and suppression of the immune system. Um, so I, I guess um, we, we, don't, we don't know all the answers, and we certainly don't know about the health conditions of the doctors that have, that have died, but we know in certainly in the um, black and South Asian communities, um, that these um, lifestyle-related conditions are more prevalent at an earlier age and often more severe, despite maybe not being as overweight as one um, associates with um, um, having the... And yeah, I guess in my practice as a haematologist, it hasn't been so front facing as it were mm. but I mean my I work at King's College Hospital where the surrounding population is overrepresented um by people of color particularly um black individuals and actually in our workplace more than 50 percent of our staff are actually um BAME um so so yes I'm you know very conscious about the differences between the illnesses seen within the um black African community um the the differences in educational attainment um, and um, understanding the types of medicine we're advocating for. There's often a, a lot of suspicion and people are reluctant to seek um, medical attention in the first place, which might be contributing to things. And and this is slightly off at a tangent, but I guess we mustn't forget that within the groups, um, within the nursing groups, um, that the uh, there's been over-representation of uh, Filipino nurses that have, have died as, as well. And, you know, they represent a really valued part of our, our nursing um, um, and, and why they should be disproportionately affected is not clear to me. Sure. I mean, has there been, do you know of any opinion pieces that have looked at that? I know there's a BAME nurse, Carol Cooper, who does quite a big uh, bit of work around it. Uh, looking at the Filipino community? Not looking at the Filipino community, but looking at nursing populations. Yeah, no, I haven't read anything particular, but certainly in, in at work, you know, in my workplace at King's College Hospital, you know, the discussions we have, are, you know, the Filipino nurses particularly are, are very reluctant ever to say no, you know, they always, um, they're overrepresented in 
people taking extra shifts through the bank, yeah. you know, they might yeah. be more likely to put themselves forward because that, that's the culture that they uh, are um, used to. You know, you don't say no if you're asked to do an extra shift. Certainly don't complain. And I think, you know, uh, same with the um, Asian and black communities, you're, you're less likely to make a fuss if you think that that's going to detrimentally affect how your colleagues and your seniors think about you. Um, and so, you know, certainly for the Filipino nurses, they may be finding themselves in a situation where they can't say no and are often more front-facing than than the non-Filipinos have um, gone higher up the hierarchy and um, in more managerial positions rather than patient-facing. I think that is quite an important uh, aspect. A lot of the BIM community may be working on the NHS, but they may be working much more front-facing than um, the local Caucasian population that may be in higher up more managerial positions, both in the nursing and in the medical front. Uh, you know, the number of consultants, for example, are fewer. I know, um, the, you know, BAME consultants have died, uh, but overall, when you look at the NHS staffing, it is disproportionate, the way the spread of, um, you know, the percentage of BAME groups are in the various hierarchical uh, aspects of the NHS, you know, uh, ladder. And I think that has a role to play as well. Absolutely. And we're going to unpack that in a minute, as I want to discuss the NHS and how BAME are uh, represented. But just before we go on to that, um, Shireen, you obviously mentioned that when it comes to diabetes and cardiovascular health, the medical system has adapted guidelines for those in South Asian communities just because you know, the biology and, yeah, the pathophysiology differs between Caucasians and South Asians with how you explained the uh, deposition of visceral fat. So I guess that's an example of where the medical system has kind of risen to the task to make greater awareness around these disparities in different ethnic groups' um, physiology. But could you think of some other examples where this hasn't actually been the case. And um, I know I want to talk to you all about vitamin D being a point of discrimination for baby communities as um, doctors, um, you know, you're taught about the dose of vitamin D supplementation set on white people. So um, what are your thoughts all around this and how the system can um, rise to the challenge and where they've kind of left gaps? Um, yeah, I mean, a complex um, question, and it's sort of, you know, um, making sure that all people in society, regardless of status, colour, background, you know, ethnic origins, have access to the correct information that's relevant for them and their communities, um, access to the right tools and the support systems so that if changes need to be made, that they are supported. Um, to do that in a culturally sensitive um, manner and um, I, I, I guess with the vitamin D um, situation um, it's it's unclear what contribution it's making um, to the morbidity and mortality of COVID um, but it's a it's a really relevant um, certainly theory and an easily rectifiable issue. Um, I mean, I have to say, I find that even amongst my immediate colleagues at work, you know, there's a there's people who are and aren't taking 
um, vitamin D and don't seem to think it's a, an issue. So I think there's a, a larger communication issue there. But I mean, I think it might be contributing. We don't know. Certainly, everyone that I measure vitamin D in um, prior to cancer treatment has a low level, regardless of their their ethnic background. Sure, um, okay. And it's an easy thing to to rectify um but yeah i think we need to make sure that all communities have access to healthy food and exercise opportunities and outdoor space and, and i think those sort of things within the city certainly in london are not um equally accessible to everyone and Tosin Nita, do you have any thoughts of this on how um certain guidelines have been well adapted um with considering vein communities. For instance, I know in medical school when we learn um, the hypertension drugs, um, we know that you give a kind of different regime to someone from an Afro-Caribbean background versus Caucasian. So um, in primary care, Tosin, um, would you say, yeah. how would you comment on this? Yeah, I think you've given some good examples though when it comes to BMI and um like you said, when we're dealing with hypertensive medication. I think it's, it's difficult. It all comes down to research at the end of the day, and it comes down to have we done enough research on a certain population to be able to give this specific advice and this specific management. Um, and I think as time goes on, there, will def there definitely needs to be more research into certain communities um, so we're offering them the right management when it comes to certain medical problems. So I can't, I mean, there's nothing that jumps to my mind specifically sure. in terms of in terms of a specific kind of health condition in which we're, we're looking at different communities. I think you made some good examples, but I just think um, research at the end of the day is what it boils down to, and it's something that as the world is, changing the research has to keep up with that definitely and me too uh, do you have any examples in obzingaini well not but i mean we know like shirin said almost anybody that you test um tends to be low in vitamin d um not least because of the attitudes that we live in don't really see the sun um also, BAME, uh, you know, darker colored skin, um, BAME communities need to know that they need to be exposing their arms and legs and back of their neck for longer periods of time. That information is often not there. Um, and I think there have been some studies to show that certainly with the SARS uh, virus uh, from 2004, uh, that vitamin D um, uh, deficiency was possibly a factor. Uh, and this has been on the back of certain uh, studies that showed that children who were vitamin D deficient at only under the age of five tended to have a higher incidence of pneumonia. Uh, and so um, knowing that, what we don't know is that when you give them, um, when you, if you are vitamin D replete, uh, then whether giving extra vitamin D actually makes a difference. I don't think we have all the answers. Uh, but certainly we know that a lot of pregnant women are vitamin D deficient. Uh, and so there's a lot of education that needs to be done. There's a reluctance uh, often. Uh, and again, as I said, back again to the language uh, problems uh, where uh, women who are most in need of it may not be able to access this simple information because it, they don't understand it. 
Sure. No, language definitely comes into it a great deal. And so on to unpacking what you said previously, Nitu, about uh, the representation of BAME doctors and other allied healthcare professionals within the NHS. Um, I want to talk about that a bit because I've recently read a brilliant BMJ opinion piece called Why Are the Angels White? And it touches upon this lack of representation in government briefing, briefings, but I would like to know a bit further about how you feel about the representation in the NHS. So um, let's start off with you. So, yes, I, I think, as I already mentioned, uh, that there seems to be over-representation in the lower rungs of the ladder in yeah. NHS, yeah. whether it is in the nursing um, um, hierarchy, uh, hierarchy or whether it is amongst junior doctors and staff grade doctors, more front-facing, more in contact with patients. Uh, and this, I think, has uh, definitely a role to play uh, in what we have seen. I know we haven't actually looked at the entire spread and what underlying problems were there, but I think that's going to be a significant factor. Uh, and also just to you know, the fact that when we look back, you know, from the Oxford study a, year, a couple of years ago, where it shows that black women were five times more likely to die in childbirth, that for me was a big signaling point saying that there is possibly uh, something else going on here. You know, maybe we're not listening to our patients. We don't take them as seriously as soon as we see that they speak differently, look different, have a different color of skin. So those are my views uh, and thoughts and you know obviously sure. there's a lot to talk about this area but it'll be interesting to hear from Shireen and Tosin so I won't go on. Yes, yeah, so over 50% of the workforce um, is of BAME background but when you look at the board and uh, the executive members, the non-executive members, there's very little representation. It is quite a whitewash, if, if that's an okay term to, to use. Um, so there really needs to be more work done there. I mean, we do have a BAME committee, but, you know, really uh, uh, BAME background individuals when more than 50% of your workforce are from a BAME background really should be on the executive board um, and in positions of um, authority and decision making and certainly when you look at the nursing ranks and the doctor ranks um, you, it's less likely that you're going to find black, Asian, Filipino nurses, doctors in those management um uh, roles um, and decision-making roles um, and I you know it's interesting because this week I, I put together an open letter to NHS leaders and, and, the, and the government and when I was looking through names of people that I would send the letter to you know the CMOs of all our four devolved nations you know very white our hierarchy and um, so I think um, I hope that this um, COVID pandemic will highlight the need for more representation more fair representation of our communities in, in decision-making roles so that these decisions can be appropriate to our communities yeah no thank you for your yeah. views and we're going to discuss your open letter further on in the podcast and on to you Tosin how do you feel 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think just to put some of the things that have already been set, said into statistics, 92% of NHS chief executives and chairs are white. So that's only even 8% for the black and Asian and ethnic minority com- communities, which I think is a shocking number um, in this day and age. And it hasn't changed much. When you look at the research, it really hasn't changed much over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Um, so I think I think that's something that really needs to be addressed. And when you look at a lot of the papers that talk about this, there's always talk about change and, you know, how how we're going to change things in the next few years. But I, I'm really seeing little change in those numbers. Um, so I think it's concerning. And another statistic that I read is that um, BAME doctors are twice as likely to be reported to the GMC than their white counterparts. And again, we have to look at the reasons why. Um, likely multifactorial, but again, it's a, it's a concern and um, quite a high statistic. So there's definitely disparity in the NHS. Um, and it's not representative of the NHS as a whole, but it's definitely there and it's definitely an issue. Yes, absolutely, that is a shocking statistic. And um, in GP land, Tosin, how have you felt as um, yeah, as a woman of colour in primary care? I think, to be honest with you, it's really dependent on where you work, I will say. I've, in kind of my medical journey through training and into being a GP, it's, it's been really, diff- I've felt really different and I've been perceived differently depending on where I've worked. So I did my training in an elephant and castle area, which is majority a West African population. So actually it was a great experience because I, the patients that I was seeing they were able to relate to me in a certain way. You can see the excitement when they saw that they were seeing a doctor that looked like them. Um, whereas I worked in communities in the West Midlands, well, just outside the West Midlands, that are very white communities. And I think it's, it's difficult when you're in a workplace surrounded by people that, in a sense, don't look like you. Sometimes yeah. it's, it's difficult, but that's the world that we live in. So I think it really depends on where you work because it really, really changes. We're lucky that I think the majority of us, probably Ali, I think we're in, Lon- in London. Are we all in London? Yeah. Um, yes. That we're lucky that, you know, there's so many different cultures around us, but Absolutely. we're in a bubble. We're in such a bubble. If you just step outside of London, it's really not like that. So... Um, it's heavily dependent, I think, on, on where you work. Yes, and I can absolutely vouch for that because I'm from London and my family live in London, but I study in Bristol, which is obviously in the southwest region of the UK, and so we get placed in hospitals all over Somerset, which is a, you know, unanimously, unbelievably Caucasian place. And I've got good friends who are from 
um, the babe community and the way that patients have reacted to them have been has been really startling to me uh, because you know they're just not used to it and it's so, the lack of diversity is just absolutely drastic and even um, they've even experienced um, some racism that was perhaps subconscious but you know there's still no excuse and um, from um, their senior uh, clinicians that they're shadowing or on a ward round with and I remember this one girl um, had an incident where this um, consultant was so sure that she had been um, she was yeah she was a um, black African girl and she was on placement here and this consultant was so sure she'd been on placement there before and she was like no this is my first time this hospital my first time. Like, are you sure are you sure you weren't in this clinic with me and you know it was that that kind of um, you know, you know his confusion and kind of it was his own mistake it was quite foolish for him to keep hammering over it where he'd clearly made a mistake based on you know someone looking similar to her and so it really is quite drastic in the southwest yeah i mean i i'll say there's a lot there's a lot of instances like that unfortunately um especially in medical school because you're often put in kind of scenarios and places in the UK that you probably didn't think you were going to be or throughout your training, that's the thing with medicine, you, you move around the country and sometimes it's not exactly where you ideally want to be, so I think, um, unfortunately, I know a lot of my colleagues that have been through very, very similar circumstances, um, and it's very real, and I think mm. it's something that we shouldn't hide behind to just be I think talk about it more to be honest absolutely and um so speaking of medical school uh where did you study tosin i studied in manchester and how did you find that how did you find being a woman of a woman first of all and being a woman of color at medical school um what were your experiences of it i think being in the university in Manchester itself was was fine because Manchester is a very very diverse um, university and it's a massive university so you have people from everywhere. However, in medical school, I, I really saw the disparity, and I wasn't in medical medical school that long ago. I like to think I'm not that old, <laughs> but you know, there was there was four hundred people in my set at the start. Wow. There was only 10 people that were black. And for me, that just didn't, it didn't add up in my head. Um, again, could be for different reasons, but the, the proportion was just, it was just, it just didn't add up. So to be honest, that was a, I wouldn't say it was a difficulty or a hindrance. It just it was something that I had to adapt to. Um, and I found that that probably leaned me more into going outside of medical school to to different communities and different groups of medical school to kind of socialise a bit more. I didn't want to put myself into this little bubble of medical school. So I think that was my experience. I would say in being a woman in medical school, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't really feel too much disparity, to be honest. Sure. Um, in Manchester, I think it was. I think it was pretty equal. Whether we were treated slightly differently, 
possibly during training, I will say, um, consultants can be quite harsh, um, but I, I don't think it was so stark as the racial disparity. Sure, and we're going to come back to issues of sexism in a little bit later on. And Nita and Shireen, have you had? How were your experiences at medical school? Of course, uh, Nita, you studied in India internationally, um, so quite a different situation um, in the UK. So, how did you find that? And then we'll ask Shireen. So yes, I did um, do my training in a beautiful part of India, deep in the south, very simple, uh, similar to uh, the so-called Oxford and Cambridges of India. Um, mm. And so I won't, you know, throughout 25, there were only six um, girls because it was an open competition and most mm-hmm. girls weren't necessarily allowed to go away from where they lived. Um, but having said that, uh, I come from an extremely privileged um, background, being an upper caste Hindu. So I never understood uh, to... I was aware of it, but, you know, being aware is very different from actually feeling it. Um, And so uh, in medical school, there was no issue at all. I, um, being a woman, didn't uh, really make any difference. This is 40 years ago, but it, you know, that in India, being um, an upper class or upper caste uh, woman uh, does, you probably have more chances of breaking the glass ceiling uh, than if you are a man from a lower caste. So... That wasn't an issue uh, when I was training. Um, however, I was quite shocked when I moved to the UK. Right. Uh, I was expecting a very modern country. Um, and I was quite interested to see that women tended to have a much more traditional role. Um, and, you know, there were hardly any role models for me. There were no female consultants, very few, and the ones that were were trying to, uh, you know, have to keep up with the men, uh, so it were. And there were a lot of little backhanded um, comments that I now look back and realize they were slightly racist. Oh, you don't sound like somebody from India. Mm-hmm. Oh, your English is very good. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know how to react. I knew it was wrong, but I didn't know what was wrong about it. Right. It's so subtle. I, uh-huh. Yeah, it was very subtle in the sense that it was as if I was being made to feel a little bit different. Um, so, yes, I personally, you know, I am a very strong uh, woman and I don't think I would have tolerated any anybody uh, being openly um, racist. Uh, but, you know, when you look back, you realize there were lots of little instances uh, that one would... Um, Especially, you know, I moved around the country when I, when I trained, not just in London. Uh, but I couldn't rush back to London because I have to say this is where I felt most at home. Sure, because it's so diverse. And yeah. Shireen, um, if you could just tell us, are you first generation? Uh, how did you grow up? Um, what are your parents? Yeah, so um, I, I was born here in, in the UK and I spent most of my life in, in London, although recently I've moved out of London, although I still work um, at King's. Um, so, you know, I went to medical school in in London as well, and like, I guess, many uh, South Asian uh, um, uh, children didn't move that far from uh, 
from home. Um, but um, yeah, so medical school was a small year of about 100 people, of which there were many women and many South Asians, actually. So um, I, I didn't have any negative experiences. Um, and, and, I, and I guess, you know, my own personal opinion or my personal journey, I, I don't feel like I have... Um, had any direct um, or negative impact from my gender or my um, race. But um, I, I guess, as Nithi says, sometimes it can be subtle. And, and, and I think London is a, is a different place with its diversity and more accepting of people of colour compared to outside of London you know I now live in Hampshire which again is very Caucasian and suddenly I can be the only brown face you know walking down the street or to the shops or, or in the supermarkets so um, yeah I think growing up in London um, has protected me somewhat. Yeah I guess that is kind of it, it's the gold standard place for kind of integration and diversity even though there are still issues but I guess when you go further afield they really come to light. And um, so on to a slightly um, unique question so um, I was wondering if you could share your experiences the three of you of whether um, and ever you've ever been a patient and you've had any sort of felt kind of um you know prejudice or racism from your doctor if you've ever had that kind of feeling of what some BAME uh, patients do report or if you've had family members um who've kind of felt that i i will say that not necessarily my not myself or family members but i will say and it goes from a lot of my friends and um, some of my patients. They often feel like they're not heard. Sure. Um, they often say that, you know, they are complaining of X, Y, and Z, and it takes them around five times or ten times to complain about the same thing until they're heard sometimes or sometimes until it's too late. Um, anecdotally, that's, that's what I've heard from some people's experiences around, but to be honest, I, I haven't been in that position. I guess I probably haven't been given the opportunity um, sure. to be in that position. Which is, yeah, fantastic. Um, I only asked because, um, and most relevant to Tosin, I did a medical humanities degree as my intercalation last year and period. We did a whole module on medical racism and looked at the history of how um, um, African Caribbean people had kind of been exploited through medical experimentation and uh, we looked in particular at this um, syphilis study, the Tuskegee study where um, African American men were completely uh, exploited to test the um, vaccine on and to actually give them the infected syphilis to see how they reacted. And um, I remember having a discussion with my friend and she brought a statistics to me about analgesics and um, uh, black African women and how um, sometimes it's, it's reported that they actually get less analgesia in care because it's been kind of, you know, like hypothesized uh, through medical racism over the years that they can um, kind of withstand pain more. 
Um, so I just was wondering if you comment on that and if um, you'd ever, if you'd heard of that before even, or um, had been told that kind of uh, thing from friends and family friends. Oh, so, I mean, I, I guess, you know, um, racism is alive um, and, you know, entrenched in our culture and systems, sadly, um, it, it just in a different form, you know, just because slavery has been abolished or, or you know, we, we say we've got equal rights for all, we know that that really isn't true. We have, we are in a society where there is institutional and structural racism. So those stories of experimenting, um, I've also heard, and I think it occurs in, in different forms. Uh, as we've said, you know, just the um, inequalities in, in health, economic status, the fact that um, black and Asian workers are in jobs that most of us don't actually want to do, whether it's in, um, you know, slaughterhouses and meatpacking houses, as has been highlighted in New York and other states in, in, in America, um, you know, cleaning domestic staff, etc. So, um, you know, I, I'm not surprised um, uh, that there, there will be stories like that um, and therefore um, we all have to work towards making sure we live and work in an, in, in an equitable society but that takes us all to, to speak out and, and um, call out um, these things when we see them at the time uh, you know, so, that, so that our voice is heard on, on everyone's behalf. Absolutely. And so in that vein, how do you think and, you know, how can our listeners learn from this and how, how do you think we can call out this kind of prejudice and racism when it happens, um, you know, without being just in the most appropriate way? I guess it could be quite a complex confrontation to have in a workplace. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I haven't got all the answers because it's not an area I feel expert in at all. But I think, you know, with any social injustice, whoever it's happening to, we can't just sit back and say to ourselves, this is wrong, but it wasn't me that did it. So, you know, it's nothing to do with me. We're all in this together. Um, so, you know, any injustice needs to be called out, whether it's writing to your, uh, you, you know, you, your representative in Parliament, whether it's um, organising demonstrations, whether it's rallying around the individual to show them support without, you know, caring or, or being concerned about um, other people's perceptions about you. Um, it's, it's all of those things and having these conversations, as you say, accepting that it's part of the society we live in and then making ourselves uh, part of the change rather than just accepting that it's happening, saying, well, it's nothing to do with me um, and let some it out. Sure. And Tosin and Neetu, how do you think we can support BAME health workers? Like yeah, I think in the same voice as Shireen, um, it's just about speaking out when you see a problem. And I think a lot of people feel that, oh, you know, what's my small voice going to do? Or if I'm just one person, what can I do? But I think it's the, it's the effect of lots of small voices coming together to create a big change. And so I think it's just encouraging everyone to speak out when they see something that isn't right. 
Absolutely. And so do you feel, um, for instance, I'm obviously of uh, Caucasian backgrounds and I'm doing this podcast, do you feel very open to the fact that it's all a shared conversation, but of course it's not us who um, have experience of how it feels, but we can absolutely highlight the issue and call it out. How do you feel about um, when Caucasians are making political statements about it, when obviously, you know, they're not the ones in the direct position that have been affected, but they do want to make a change? Yeah, I think um, it is really important uh, because, um, you know, while you may not necessarily be going through the same experience, uh, and even myself in a position of privilege, I think every platform needs to be used uh, and to be used properly. I don't think that, you know, just because, um, you know, even I'm still learning the language to use right now. Uh, and it's not necessarily always right, but the important thing is to be trying to be uh, aware that, you know, acknowledge the privilege, as we say, and then move on so that you can actually empower people, you know, direct people to um, voices who can actually explain what is happening in the community. So I, I think absolutely what you're doing is right. You know, you can't change who you are, but you can uh, at, as in the color of your skin, but what you can do is, uh, you know, give people the platform to reach to others who may not have had the opportunity to listen to us. Yes, absolutely. And so in that vein, um, Nisu, how do you think we could help BAME workers just by kind of speaking out everything that um, uh, Tosin yeah. and Shireen have mentioned? Do you have any other points to add? I, I think I see this in, in obstetrics especially, um, you know, or in Otsangaini because women historically have been looked as, uh, you know, they're strong, they're stoic, they can put up with more pain. And then that is translated even more uh, when uh, to the pain uh, group of patients. And um, as a result, you will often find that, uh, you know, pain relief is denied. Um, and I don't necessarily think it's always subconsciously. I think uh, these aspects need to be called out, need to be highlighted so that people can make the difference. And, you know, uh, Partha Kaur talks about carer apathy. And, and I think that's important to understand that sometimes it can be just a downright racism, but often it could be that, you know, there are uh, other aspects that are actually playing into it uh, where you can't be bothered because you know uh, you don't understand what they're trying to say you know no people don't people forget just imagine if you're in France and you don't speak French and you were yeah. ill how would you feel if somebody was trying to explain to you that you had a ruptured appendix and you were going to go to theater it's the same you know just talking louder or shouting it out yeah. or speaking slower doesn't mean that you're going to understand the language and so the language that we use has to be right uh, and you know we need to take people along with us rather than uh, saying this is there's only one way of doing it and nobody else can speak i think everybody can speak as long as they're speaking with uh, you know the right intentions uh, and, and are willing to learn as as mistakes are made and say okay that was not the way to do it how we should do it and that i think is what is missing in our government they're not willing to learn yes yes and i couldn't agree more with what you're saying i think that willingness to learn is how you can show your support to those who yeah. are in trickier positions to yourself because we all have to learn on how we can you, you know have um 
kind of conversations around this and then how it can lead to policy change and go about it in the right way but obviously you don't know that from the onset but you have to try absolutely and so then back to the important topic of sexism i know we've um briefly touched upon it so i really wanted to get together a panel of inspiring women which i think have done a good job of um you're all fantastic so um how do you feel representation is you've spoken about how in the non-exec and exec positions in the nhs it's all caucasians how do you feel about the senior positions within the NHS um, in terms of the medical structure being consultants and within the managerial structure being these non-execs and execs, how do you feel the representation is going at the moment? Yeah, so, well, I, mean, I, I think within the hospital, certainly, you know, um, women are underrepresented. I, I don't have the exact stats, but when uh, in my workplace, when we've looked at for example, um, the the breakdown of earning and also um, consultants who are getting the um, you know extra awards or are in clinical director roles, um, the females are less represented. Um, given the fact that um, you know the the mix of doctors now going to or, or people going to medical school now are very much um, more women than than men so again I think we have work to do you know all those factors where you know women taking career breaks raising children etc it continues to disadvantage um, people within the structures of the NHS and also within research as well you know most or many more um, lab leads are are men um, you know who haven't taken career breaks and therefore sort of jeopardized their their um, uh, rise through the hierarchy so I think the when when um, the stats are, are looked at in individual workplaces, it's quite clear that um, women are less represented, earn less, and are, are are getting less awarded for the same work. Um, but um, yeah, so that's certainly clear in my workplace. I I would say for for me when we look at primary primary care, it's slightly different. Um, in that there's a lot more female doctors in primary care. But if we look at the NHS altogether, I think there's definitely disparity when it comes to gender roles in the high-up positions. And actually, I just came across, I was just trying to find it on my phone, but I just came across some statistics today. Um, and this is from the NHS Pay Gap Report in 2019. It said for every one pound a black female doctor earns, a white female doctor earns one pound nineteen, and a white male doctor earns one pound thirty-eight. So, I mean, it might seem like small disparities, but there's definitely some disparities when it comes to gender pay within the NHS. And if you just look at the NHS itself, it's it's the biggest employer in the UK, and if you look at our society, we know that there's disparities when it comes to men and women and how they're paid. And so the NHS is most likely just going to be a microcosm of our society, just based on the sheer number of people that it employs. Um, again, that's just my that's just my thoughts on it, but I think that there's, there's definitely going to be some 
disparities even if it's not in our immediate circle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. I think, you know, while we're looking at the NHS disparities, we have to go right back, right back to school, right back to expectations uh, from the female gender, the, you know, the role modeling that goes on. Uh, I think these things are, you know, pivotal in, in actually how you lead your lives later on. Why are women, I mean, yes, women may be the ones who are pregnant and giving birth and need their time, but we are, and as a result, are falling back in careers. But the NHS needs to look, and the government itself needs to look at equal opportunity for all genders right from the beginning, right from the time the child is in the womb, rather than waiting for us to reach the NHS as employees for us to have, then start clamoring for the right uh, equity or justice. I just feel that, you know, this is all amplified as you go along and it really needs to be going right back to where it starts, whether it is gender inequality or uh, whether it is race inequality or socioeconomic inequality. I think it all needs to be about um, opportunities and, and, you know, being able to have a frank discussion. And I just don't think that we are honest enough. I, I think as a, as a society, the Brexit vote did show a, a lot, again, pull the curtain for a lot of things. Absolutely. And you raised so many important points about, and the one in particular I want to touch upon is how you really have to go back to expectations of women from school and from, you know, the earliest of ages and what toys they grew up playing with and Absolutely. how that varies to women. And um, I actually wanted to mention something which uh, is really close to my heart that uh, my best friend's mom started and it's called the Barbie Dream Gap Project. And so what they're doing is um, she's in film production, so she's working with Barbie, the brand, to introduce girls to women's stories from all walks of life to show them that Barbie can be anything and to show them that there can be amazing empowered role models. It's not about aesthetics and looking a specific way. So they've now started having, you know, Barbie role models from all extraordinary backgrounds and um, different ethnicities and different careers and industries. And I just think... It's a very minor example, but something I thought was just so cool when I found out she was working on this project, that it really does start from what you are kind of impressing in young children's minds from the onset. Because that Absolutely. stays with you. And girls will be girls, you know. That is because of the sort of role uh, assignment you're giving them right from the start, you know. Um, and that is not how it should be, at least in my mind. It never was when I was growing up in my own household and it wasn't for my daughters. But I, I think it's a bigger question not to be left just to the personal, um, you know, um, family uh, values. It has to be something much more entrenched in, in education and uh, the government. Absolutely, it's a systemic change. And yes. um, I do think, yeah, I do think we're getting better. And, you know, like you all were mentioning, um, with the rise of more women applying for medicine, my year group at Bristol is absolutely two thirds women and one third guys, uh, which is amazing to see because so many of the female consultants get such a fright when they have a tutorial uh, to give and there's just one guy in that group of 10. Um, so it is really interesting to see that. So um, 
on to a slightly more negative note, uh, I do think there's a lot of hope in here, but I was just wondering if you guys had experienced any overt or covert sexism uh, being a, f a female doctor in the workplace. On both of, or, you know, even on a personal level as well, in the professional world, and, yeah, personally. I, I, the only time I actually had a, a comment was when I passed my driving test uh, the first time, and the, my, one of our neighbours actually said, oh, he hadn't passed the, the test, he'd taken it about five, six times, I think. And he said, oh, you passed because you are a woman. That was the possibly the only, uh, I tend to probably not be very in tune with listening to these remarks, so I, I think a lot of these remarks have passed me by. Sure. But I haven't really faced any um, sexist remarks, um, as such, I would say, either in India or in the 30 years I've been here. And Shireen? Um, not so overtly, but I think when I first qualified, you know, 20 years ago, um, I think pe people still expected to see a white older man as their doctor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, seeing a, a young Indian girl, I think people assume that you're a nurse or, or, you know, healthcare assistant or whatever. So, you know, just those surprise that, oh, you're a doctor kind of thing. But I, I guess as I've got more confident and and um, the, 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 the norms of what we expect of a doctor has, has changed, as we've said, you know, when women are uh, much more um, represented in, in um, healthcare systems as doctors now rather than just nurses. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of South Asian doctors in, uh, in London, but that's become less um, of a comment. But, um, yeah, people, are, uh, patients in general more lean towards thinking that the older white man, man is, is the doctor that you should believe in more than the, you know, brown female. Sure. So, Tosin, do you have anything to comment? I think, similar to Serene, I think um, maybe doing training, I probably experienced it more. And it was just the odd comment now and then that, oh, I didn't expect to see you as my doctor. And I don't know whether to put that on gender, race, age, or all three factors together. Um, but yeah, as time has gone on, and whether that's the society becoming more used to, like Shereen said, the fact that doctors come in all different shapes, sizes, and colours, um, or whether, again, it's a little bit of that my confidence has actually grown, and um, perhaps that is... I kind of come off in a different way and I'm perceived in a different way than I was during training. Yeah, multifactorial, but I definitely did get some of those comments um, earlier on. Sure. I guess you're more kind of, I mean, I know I am like more vulnerable and insecure when you're going through training and I'm obviously right at the start. And so you may feel less confident here and there. I definitely feel um, I've experienced a bit of sexism here and there with be it on a ward round and, um, you know, the male white consultant or, you know, sometimes it's got nothing to do with ethnicity is directing all his comments um at the, the guy I'm with and um, similarly if I'm in surgery and it's me and a, and, a, and a male medical student it's him who kind of gets more of the opportunity to get involved and muck in and 
Um, I even had this one really old school consultant in Bath um, who, yeah, very old school, wore a bow tie and I was, yeah, I was with him in clinic and he just couldn't look me in the eyes and it was just, yeah, it was quite bizarre but um, it's just very, yeah, it's very covert rather than, you know, anything too, um, it, yeah, obvious. Ali, I did think of one thing that I often get asked yes. uh, on a regular basis, actually, uh, on a weekly basis, I would say, um, when I'm seeing patients. And um, initially, I thought it was that they were worried about um, which grade of doctor was going to operate on them. But often they would turn around and say, so who's going to do the surgery? And, you know, yeah. uh, that, whether it's in the NHS or in the private sector, I seem to get one of those comments pretty much most weeks, um, you know, uh, so much so that I had to do a post on it. So yes, I suppose that is, uh, you know, patients having an expectation that, you know, women can't really be a surgeon. That's very interesting that you get that at such a high mm -hmm. level. Yeah, and I'm sure you wouldn't want to do a post about that because it's definitely <laughs> important to highlight. Yeah. Um, so how, in similar vein, how do you think we can, uh, you know, put pressure on the system to kind of, um, you know, not even put pressure so dramatically, but just how can we as individuals help navigate this and, you know, open the conversation about gender? I think we need to be the voice. We need to be the voice uh, for ourselves uh, as well as people who need um, you know, to be um, helped because of a number of reasons, whether they have um, disabilities or whether it is to do with gender or colour. Uh, I think we need to take our um, colleagues alongside with us, our friends and families. So education, I think, is really the key. A lot of this comes from ignorance. And once you can dispel ignorance and educate, 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 I think... Um, without education and without reading and informing people, it, it is hard. You get stuck, you know, exactly where you are and don't move forward. So for me, that is the, the key. Absolutely. And does anyone else have comments on this? And only just to say that we just have to accept that this is part of our society and our structure at the moment and accept that it happens whether you believe it or not you know most people as I say people say I'm not racist and I don't discriminate against gender I don't do this but but we do as a society and and we accept it and then we educate ourselves and then we speak out and and be the change yeah yeah I, I agree I think it's all about like you said similarly when it comes to racial disparities, it's all about speaking out. And even if you feel that your voice is just a small voice, it's not sitting back when you feel that something is unjust or isn't right. Um, and then eventually, we'll hopefully see a change. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and before we move on to um, just finding out about your interest in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, Nita and Shireen, I'm going to put it in the show notes, the link to the video. You were recently involved in that fantastic video um, of doctors of colour. Um, I think it came from the States. Yes. So if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about how you got involved in it and why it's so important. 
So I got involved uh, in a first video uh, that was to do with um, when COVID-19 first became apparent uh, and that um, there was some um, role to play, nutrition had a role to play, lifestyle had a, some role to play, it appeared in the early parts. And so I was invited to do be part of a video then and then that progressed on through uh, Brooklyn President Eric Adams um, who did the first video, his campaign, and then the second video was on um, healthcare professionals of color. So it was just a very big honor to be uh, asked to be part of that, and I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Wow, no, that sounds like such a huge honor from international waters to yeah be chosen, you and Shireen as the two Brits. <laughs> yeah, and so can you just tell our listeners, Shireen, um, what the video is about and just the main messages? when it comes to nutrition and lifestyle. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, people may not have heard of Eric Adams if they're not themselves um, plant-based or advocates of lifestyle medicine, but Eric Adams, who you said is the borough, uh, the Brooklyn Borough President um, back in 2016, was overweight and diagnosed with diabetes and somehow came across um, the information to show him that a whole food plant-based diet would not only get his weight down to a healthful level, but also had the potential to reverse his diabetes. He then went on to reverse diabetes um, by um, adopting a healthy plant-based um, diet. And so he's become a major advocate within the lifestyle medicine movement within the US of both um, a plant-based diet and the other aspects of lifestyle that um, enable us to lead a healthy life. So he's he's made some really impressive inroads within the Brooklyn community and in fact um, uh, within New York, Bellevue Hospital has a plant-based. Yeah, so Eric Adams has helped um, get funding for an actual plant-based primary care clinic within Bellevue Hospital, which is, a, which is the big public hospital in New York, um, and that's run by Dr. Michelle McMacken, but backed by Eric Adams and his team, wow. where they, um, where individuals with lifestyle-related diseases are helped to transition to more plant-based diets and start um, undertaking the other aspects of lifestyle that will help them um, both uh, reverse and, and prevent um, future um, disease. So he, he's a real icon in, in America, certainly in the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. He gave a keynote speak at their conference last year. So um, this video that myself and Nithi were involved in was bringing together um, doctors of colour who are proponents of a healthy plant-based diet, as myself and Nithi are, to really highlight um, the impact of diet and lifestyle on preventing the chronic diseases that are more prevalent in the BAME community and are therefore contributing to the higher mortality and morbidity of, of COVID. Um, so, and, and, and virtually, I think where I've noticed more that um, the uh, doctors of colour are less represented, uh, when you look at who um, often give interviews and are highlighted in articles yeah. um, when they're talking about lifestyle and nutrition. So there's a lot of plant-based doctors, as you know now, and many of them are people of colour. Um, but when you see who is highlighted in social media and in the mainstream media, it's usually 
um, white doctors and often white men. So I think that's where I've noticed that um, being a person of colour um, is less likely to be asked for interviews and, and, and those sort of um, things potentially. And that's why it was a complete honour to be asked by Eric Adams to be part of this um, really important message for the BAME community. No, it sounds absolutely amazing, the opportunity, and yeah, I loved the video, I thought it was so powerful, and yeah, like I said, it'll be linked in the show notes for our listeners to have a look at. So, just rewinding a bit, I know uh, the reason why um, I found you initially is because of my interest in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, so I want to hear from all of you um, how you became first interested in it. So, let's start with... For me, I think it was during my GP training, and I think it was really during my year that I was in um, general practice, and I started to become frustrated with the patients that I, when I was seeing patients, and just the mere fact that I felt that I was always given a pill to fix the problem, and I knew that there was so much more to medicine than this. And that's when I started to do my own research into lifestyle medicine. And I started to gather the information and the tools and the knowledge for myself because, as you know, Ali, it's something that we're really not taught at medical school. So I had to do that research for myself. And again, I think with that, I just felt that I was doing a disadvantage to my patients not having that knowledge um, to give to them. And although it's pretty impossible in a 10-minute consultation. I thought that's why I had to go out and create another platform so I could go beyond the four walls of my consultation room and just try and educate people, even if it's just through small chunks of knowledge, try and educate as many people as possible on in what they need and the tools and the knowledge to look after themselves and just to get to know their body a little bit more better. And I felt that was really missing. So that's really how I got into the space and how I became more interested in it. And so is that why you kind of decided to create your brainchild, my body doctor, just so you could hit the masses more away from the 10 minute consultation restraint? Exactly, exactly. I was, for me, it was, it was a passion that I had found within myself and I felt, well, you know, it's really difficult in general practice to be able to speak to patients about, you know, the lifestyle changes that they can make. So I thought, you know, let's take it to social media, let's take it online. Um, and that's what I did. Brilliant. And Nitu, can you comment on how you became interested in nutrition and lifestyle growing up in India? Was there a lot of emphasis on Ayurveda within your family? How did you become interested? Was it more ingrained within your culture than, say, people from Western uh, society? Tell us. So, I grew up in India, but um, although I imbibed a lot of culture and food habits, naturally, um, I was brought up in a very Western atmosphere, went to a convent school, went to medical school, um, didn't really think very much, uh, chose Obsangaini because it had this perfect remix as far as I was concerned of surgery uh, and med internal medicine and psychology and it sort of thrilled me, still thrills me uh, 35 years later. But as I went along, I realized that I was um, seeing women 
after the disease process had started and I just felt that this was wrong. I hadn't been taught anything about nutrition in school. I hadn't been taught anything about lifestyle, medicine. I had no um, interest, no idea. I just knew about Ayurveda and homeopathy and these were all fringe uh, not to be entertained uh, medical disciplines because, you know, Western medicine was supposed to be the best. Uh, and, of course, I was very much proven wrong as I, I, I realized that really it is, we are what we eat. What matters is what is on our plate. Uh, and that modern medicine has to go hand in hand with lifestyle medicine. If 80% of what we see in the specialist clinic and in the GP surgery is related to chronic lifestyle diseases. So I decided to educate myself. Uh, I, I set up um, Women for Women's Health because I was passionate uh, to empower women to make better health choices because I knew women talked to other women. Women talked to other members of the community and I wanted to start in schools. So that's what I did is do workshops in schools and um, essentially educate myself as well as educate people around me. So that, and then I trained in lifestyle medicine, did a board certification and there's never been any looking back. Um, I understand it, um, you know, and I just wish I'd done this 40 years ago when I first started medical school. Exactly, it needs to be made compulsory so you don't even have to worry about well, having I mean, to go seek I did write several times to my college. I went and met the chief exec. Uh, this is about 10 years ago. And, you know, I didn't know the term of lifestyle medicine then, but uh, I knew that what I wanted to say. But, you know, there has been, there was not much interest. And in fact, I was a training program director for the North Thames East. And in spite of that, I was not able to bring in a module. So I have to do my own thing, you know, bring it into every lecture that I do <laughs> so that, you know, the young are the future, aren't they? So, and yeah, we definitely are with you there. We're trying to change the system so that people just are trained I, from the onset. I love what, what you guys are doing, really. I think it's really important. And it's great. We need to get you to teach us. We need to clone all, clone you, and get you teaching all the medical students all your wisdom. And so, Shireen, last but not least, I wanted to tell us, I know you're so passionate about this area, about your interest in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, why you started Plant-Based Health Professional, and give us the update on this open letter. Yeah, thanks, um, Ali. So, um, I became vegan for ethical reasons back in 2013, and um, after making that decision, um, I needed to understand... Um, nutrition for myself you know I, had, I decided to change my diet but needed to understand that I could do it in a healthful sustainable way and I was shocked um, at all the information the science-based information um, that was already available showing us that plant-based diets are predominantly plant-based I accept it doesn't have to be a hundred percent but the closer you get to eating predominantly whole food plant-based the better that one's health um, so the power of nutrition to prevent and potentially reverse chronic diseases <clears throat> such as you know overweight obesity diabetes type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease and that then led on to reading more about um, 
lifestyle medicine in general and like Nidhu have completed certification in lifestyle medicine through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Um, but along the way I realised that most of the education on plant-based nutrition was coming out of America and all the books that had been written, all the conferences um, and that although people in the UK were aware of um, these uh, you know, lifestyle medicine doctors and, and nutrition advocates from the US, you know, people want a UK perspective and, you know, things that are relevant to our healthcare system and our environment and our culture. So um, that's where plant-based health professionals came from in order to be um, the science-based, evidence-based education for those who want to learn more and follow for themselves um, a healthy plant-based diet, which, you know, is, is termed a whole food plant-based diet. And I've taken that on further to by um, partnering with Winchester University and developing and delivering a specific course, online course, on um, plant-based nutrition for clinical um, health professionals, um, which Nithu has also helped me with, with her lecture on um, women's health. Um, so, so yes, so that's where my interest um, comes from. I, I fully appreciate that all aspects of lifestyle medicine are equally important, but my passion really is for promoting um, plant-based um, nutrition through um, Plant-Based Health Professionals UK. Oh, and then Ali, you asked me about the open letters. Yes, yeah, so this, tell us about it. It, it, it wasn't, um, you know, this isn't a, a plant-based health professional's letter. It's just me getting together colleagues and like-minded um, healthcare professionals who work in the NHS who are passionate about changing the food environment because I don't need to tell you that currently our food environment and our food system is unfair, unsustainable and unhealthy and we need to make it the exact opposite. We need to make it fair, sustainable and healthy for all and it needs to be accessible and affordable to all. So healthy diets should not be a privilege, they should be the basis of, of our healthcare system and that really is going to need a structural systemic change through legislation, taxation, subsidies um, and it's not dissimilar to, to the report that was published by the European Commission just this week called farms forks um, is their farms to fork strategy and within that it's calling for a radical overhaul of the food system and it talks about shifting citizens to a predominantly plant-based diet because our sustainability of our planet depends on it you know we can no longer eat um, the volumes of meat eggs and dairy that we have been consuming if we want to keep within planetary boundaries for our food system um, so it's a necessary shift that sadly we've been talking about it for several years but the actual um, structures that need to be put in place to help all our citizens of the UK transition to healthy plant-based diets are still not in place because it comes down to knowledge, skills, education and accessibility and affordability. So um, that, that's where that letter comes from and still gaining signatures, but, um, you know, over 200 NHS healthcare professionals, not just vegans, people who are concerned that our nutrition and food is contributing to chronic disease and the death toll of COVID-19. Absolutely. And that's the, you know, important link I wanted to highlight with doing this podcast at this time. It's not to say that, you know, nutrition is a panacea and food is medicine. It's to say that if you do nourish your body and, you know, you're doing things to prevent these chronic conditions um, that are lifestyle related, 
is it right in saying that you are giving yourself a better chance to fight off something that is acute and that is an equaliser and that anyone can get and is as, you know, uh, severe as COVID? Yeah, I mean, you know, anyone can get COVID, but those that are doing the worst are those that are, have the lifestyle-related diseases and from um, uh, socially economic disadvantaged groups, yeah. Yes, and it's not to say that all chronic conditions are lifestyle-related. It's very unfortunate for those who suffer from asthma and are having to shield, but I guess what we're saying is, on a whole, um, a lot of the lifestyle-related disease contribute to worse outcomes. Yeah, and, and, but, but we know, um, and you know this as well as I do, that 80% of chronic disease can be um, put down to direct physical activity, tobacco smoking, alcohol, and being an unhealthy weight. So, um, you know, yeah. they, they, that is a huge amount of the burden um, of chronic disease that the NHS is coping with on a daily basis. And with this government letter, is it the first interaction you've had with government and policymakers around plant-based diets? Well, um, um, as an organisation, we're part of the all-party parliamentary group on um, health, uh, uh, on food and health, and um, I was able to speak at one of the meetings back, I think it was back in February now, gosh, it seems such a long time ago, so there was a um, APPG meeting, food and health meeting, where I was able to speak with um, Prof Tim Key from Oxford on plant-based diets, and, you know, I think, you know, everyone, everyone recognises that that's the way forward it's just um uh putting it into policy and making sure that it's accessible to everyone absolutely and so on to something so important and in the same vein of talking around accessibility for everyone tosin i know you're very passionate about accessibility of lifestyle medicine and wellness so i really want to ask you to comment on the diversity within the wellness industry and the lifestyle medicine because of course they are slightly different and is there a case of too much whitewashing if i may use that term and um how can we address this disparity i know you have written some articles around this and you've got a bit of media kind of profile when it comes to this so yeah please speak your mind yeah, I think it's a really important discussion. I mean, the lack of representation and diversity. I mean, when we talk about the wellness industry and then lifestyle medicine, there's two separate things, but actually they're slightly merging into one sometimes, right. especially on social media. Um, but the lack of representation diversity in either or both is quite obvious, and you just have to flip through magazines, look on social media, watch the news when people from from the healthcare community from, are speaking on lifestyle medicine, we're seeing kind of the same people, you know, they look similar, um, they're from similar backgrounds. And for me, I think it's difficult because how are you meant to relate to someone or how are you meant to take advice from someone when there's very little connection? Um, and that's how I felt as well when I started Mind Body Doctor as a platform. There was a hesitation in me starting it because I felt, well, you know, this place, this space is a bit crowded. There's lots of people talking about it, but actually, I didn't really see anyone that looked like myself talking about it, and I felt like I couldn't relate to some people. So I was just like, okay, how is how are people that look like me in the general public 
supposed to relate. So that was really one of the the forces behind me starting the platform. And I think it's so important because health is something that's meant to be inclusive. Health is something that we should all have access to and we should all have the tools and the knowledge to um, act in the same way. But unfortunately, we don't and I think we do need to change that. So that's where my passion comes from and I think it's really important that we just start talking about it. I will admit that thankfully the tide is slowly changing and I think people from the BAME community are realizing that rather than waiting for for the wellness industry or let's say the lifestyle medicine industry to invite us in, we're going in and creating our own spaces where we can talk and we can make a platform for ourselves. Absolutely, as you should, because it should be all inclusive and accessible for all as you know you have to take into account all demographics of the population and so Nita and Shireen um, as huge plant-based advocates and you know to tell our listeners who um, you know may not be fully plant-based but incorporate it in their diet how can you make plant-based eating more accessible for those who are on a budget? I think it's really important to understand that eating whole food plant-based does not need to be expensive. Really, we are talking about eating beans and all kinds of legumes and intact whole grains. I always advise my um, medical students and groups of public when I speak to them, university students, that shop at times when um, the supermarket is nearly at closing time, go to the local ethnic stores, go to the uh, open markets, you'll find things for steel, so it does not need to be expensive. And start by not overthinking it. Don't think about what you can't have. Think about the things that you should have. So if you're eating two fruits a day, make it three. If you're eating three, make it four. If you're eating two vegetables, make it three. You know, just bring in more color. Don't think too much about, oh, I, I should not eat this. You know, there shouldn't be any guilt involved with it. And certainly the budget side of things, I have to say that, especially in the last two months um, <laughs> with COVID, you know, if you're not eating out, if you're not getting takeaways, you really can eat very, very reasonably, but very, very, very well. But just having these little tricks of, uh, and of course, if you're fortunate enough to have little window boxes, grow your herbs and mm. things, which allow you to uh, mm. save money on expensive things and buy in bulk. Absolutely. Absolutely buy in bulk. I do that as a student. And um, Shireen, how do you advise patients and, you know, your kind of audience within plant-based healthcare professionals around kind of their social, socio-cultural preferences around food? You know, if they've not um, kind of eaten plant-based before per se, or they do in a different form, how do you kind of make the dietary advice socio, you know, if meat's important in their kind of culture, like how do you kind of adapt it? To make it kind of culturally sensitive yeah well i mean we are we i've made sure that our group our immediate board advisors and um obviously our members are, are just by um uh, represent you know usual society are quite diverse so we, we have that diversity within our, our advisory board anyway um but also you know that all these tools are out there already. You know, there's a lot of plant-based um, cookbooks 
uh, from, you know, Asians and Africans sure. and Chinese sure. and whatever. So I think, you know, you, you make sure you pick the advice that's appropriate for the individual. And it really does need to be personalized. You know, you need to figure out where that individual is now, what their social structure is, who's going to support them and give them advice that's, um, that's achievable and not too overwhelming. So, you know, in, in the style of um, the lifestyle medicine advocates, you know, you write down small prescriptions that you know people will be able to achieve that's not a big change um, for for them. And I think once you've educated, once you've given some education and some tools and some basics, I, I don't think it's that difficult for most people to understand. It comes back to sort of making sure that they have the support and the social support that's going to make these changes sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just making it simple. Um, it's so important. Like I'm reading Brain Change Now by uh, Professor Felice Jacker. And she says, I love Michael Pollan's quote about eat, what's it is, let me see if I can get it right. Eat, you know it better than me, I'm sure. Eat, eat food, not, uh, eat food, not too much, mostly. And then she adds on, <laughs> and keep it simple. And I think that's so important, yeah, especially exactly. students and, you know, the elderly or whoever it is who find it daunting, um, it is all yeah. about keeping it simpler, not overcomplicating it all. Absolutely. And so before we move on to our last question, Tosa, do you have any um, other comments on the accessibility side um, and this kind of social cultural sensitivity side with, um, you know, lifestyle medicine and nutrition? Yeah, I, I think just echoing some of what we've already said that you know, there's the perception that living healthy is expensive and it really doesn't have to be. And it's all about educate, educating yourself and trying to find ways around that. So finding ways to exercise without paying loads for the gym or just, and it's literally not even exercise, it's getting your body moving. And like Nutri said, buying in bulk. So finding ways that you can adapt your lifestyle and not being stuck on the thought that actually living healthy has to be expensive or it's reserved for the privilege because it's really not. Exactly, couldn't agree more. Beans, sardines, like you name it, they're so cheap. Exactly. So on to the last question, my favourite question I ask all my guests on my podcast. Could each of you tell me what your last meal would be? So you've got one day to live, quite morbid, but it's all hypothetical. So your ideal starter, main and dessert. So Shireen, let's start with you. Oh gosh, I really should have prepped this uh, uh, question, shouldn't I? Um, definitely the main has got to be a curry. It's really got to be curry. So probably go for my mum's home-cooked dal with rice. Um, my dessert, um, like would have to be a piece of fruit with one piece of dark chocolate, like 85% chocolate. Starter, gosh, I very rarely have a starter. I don't I don't know. I'll come back to that maybe if I think of something. <laughs> sure, okay. And me too? Um, for me, uh, I'm a foodie, so I will be having a starter of a masala dosa, which is, I'm a South Indian, so definitely a, a crispy pancake, stuffed with potato and a sambar and chutney to go with it. Um, My main is 100% going to be a thin um, base pizza with every vegetable and lots of chilies on it. Has to be vegan. Everything has to be vegan. I don't want to be cruel. I don't want, I want to be kind even if it's my last meal. Couple of glasses of vegan rosé to go with it and my dessert 
absolutely sticky toffee pudding. That I can't tell you how many people on the podcast have said sticky toffee pudding as their final <laughs> dessert. Vegan custard. <laughs> Love it. And Tosin? Um, again, I'm not one for starters either. I'm one for dessert. So I usually skip the starter, but my main, I'll have to take it back to my home country, and that's a good bowl of jello fries. Um, and if you've never tried it before, find a recipe, make it, or find an Nigerian restaurant and try it. It's the best. Um, and then dessert is exactly the same as me too. Sticky toffee pudding. <laughs> so I've got to start a sticky toffee pudding club. <laughs> And uh, just one quick question, because we're all Londoners. Favourite restaurants? Um, and maybe make it, like, for you two, um, what's your favourite Indian restaurant, for instance? And Tosin, if there is a Nigerian one in London that I could try post-lockdown. So, yeah, tell me. Start with Nitu. Oh, um, favourite Indian restaurant has to be my own house. <laughs> <laughs> That's such an amazing response. But, um, certainly, as which is the dosa place because they get their dosas uh, better than mine. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I anything that is new and vegan, I am there trying because you know having been vegan initially so many years ago, where I used to get an apple for dessert. Um, I am there trying everything, and those are the times when I'm not fully whole food plant based. But you know what? That's it's a treat. Exactly. And Tosin, are there any, what your, what's your favourite restaurant? Is there a Nigerian restaurant that I could try? I will say, in terms of favourite Nigerian restaurants, it's difficult because when we're talking about cultural food, home cooked is always the best. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I will say, I will say my mum. <laughs> if we were going to talk about restaurants, there's quite a few in London. Ennis is good. They have. Um, they have two locations in South London, one in North London. Um, Ekoi, which is like a high-end Nigerian restaurant in London, is great. So, yeah, cool. they restaurants to try. And Shireen, any yummy vegan restaurants? I've been to quite a few. Yeah, there's loads now. Gosh, I'm out of the scene now that I don't live in London. And gosh, I haven't been to a restaurant since before lockdown. I know, it feels like another vegan. lifetime. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but 222 Veggie Vegan on North End Road, you can't go wrong, and, uh, you know, it gives you all, the, you know, a range of uh, uh, different cuisines, um, and uh, as much as whole food, plant-based as they can, can be, and they're an institution, really, in the vegan community. Amazing. Wonderful. Well, thank you all so much for coming on, and it's been an absolute pleasure. We think we've covered so many topics that are so in need of this profile, so thank you for shedding light on it. Thank you. Thank you, Ali, for inviting us. Nutritank are proud to have featured on many of the UK's leading networks and publications, Woo-hoo! Jamie Oliver's website, and his Channel 4 show, Jamie and Jimmy's Friday Night Feast, BBC News, BBC Radio 4, on Sheila Dillon's The Food Programme, Women's Health, BBC Bristol, and the Royal Society of Medicine. Nutritank is an innovative information hub of food, nutrition, and lifestyle medicine, promoting the need for greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within healthcare training and empowering members of the public to improve their health. 
growing the movement to bring greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education nationwide. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember, if you want to find more about NutriTank, visit the website, NutriTank.com. Also, find us on Twitter, NutriTank underscore info, and Instagram, NutriTank underscore official. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It will really help with our mission at NutriTank to be the leading hub for food, nutrition, and lifestyle medicine. Bye for now.